Here we go, here we go, it's the Football Shirt Show. This is They Think It's All Over, episode 56. Yes, that's right. Welcome back to episode 56 of the Football Shirt Show. They think it's all over. I'm Adrian, Football Shirt Alia, who's joining us this week. It's Mike at Footy Shirts. And Tom at Shirt Fan. And everyone's favourite substitute teacher it is Adam at This One Kit. Welcome back, Adam. We're always delighted to have you. Right, before we kick off with the serious stuff, the news, has anybody had any new shirts arrive this week? Do you know what? I've had none arrive this week. I was having a little flick through to see what I bought this year. And I've realised that so far this year, I've only had two shirts arrive, which for me is incredibly slow going. But I do have a couple more on the way. One in particular that I'm really excited about because I don't know if anybody remembers a little while back, we shared that amazing uh, pre-season kit for Terengano. And it's kind of like, the, it's the Umbra version of that Neman style with the sort of like the dip die sort of thing. The, the Bacati kit. The, the the more sicker among us may refer to it as that, yeah. Um, but I actually managed, with some help, by the way, from a site who people will know on Instagram and Twitter as Nomad Football or Football Nomad, to actually locate one. I've got one on its way to me at the moment. I'm so excited about getting that one. So, Mike, you've bought two shirts so far this year. How many have you sold? Oh, shit, I'm a flipper. I've sold three. Get him. Kill him. Yeah. I saw three. Well, I, I tried. I, I attempted to sell four. Then, when the first three sold, I felt so terrible about letting three go that the other one came back out of my wardrobe, and I actually started wearing it for running again. Similar to Mike, actually, I've only bought two shirts so far this year. Um, one of which was the Argentina home shirt with Messi on the back because I felt like I had a bit of FOMO and really wanted to have that. And the other one is the Liverpool third shirt, the glorious kind of dark green one. And I've only sold one shirt, so um, I'm doing better than Mike in the uh, the flipping stakes, or not being a flipper stakes, as it were. I've heard yeah. most of your shirts you buy through FOMO, to be honest. That's, that's what people say. All 450 of them, just for <laughs> fear of missing out <laughs> over 20-odd years. <laughs> How about yourself, Tom? I know you've, uh, you've had a happy house. Yeah, so a, a lot of rearranging is going on for me at the moment. And actually, I've only bought one shirt this year which still hasn't arrived. And it was technically bought on Christmas Eve. I think I mentioned on this podcast, a certain angry Scotsman slid into my DMs about midnight Christmas Eve to say that he's found a authentic, like the player version, Argentina shirt from the States. And I'm still waiting on it to be shipped over. <laughs> but he's got the money in the account. And, you know, I, I think he'll be true to his word, hopefully. So if he ever returns from his, his chopper activities, that is. Hang on, so you've handed over the money two months ago and he's disappeared as he is. He's gone for weeks now. I think you might have been done. He's actually upsold me as well because he took a, another 25 quid off of me for some patches. So <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping this coming through. <laughs> he saw you come in. Right, let's move on to this week's news. We have got all sorts of news for you this week. We've got a bit of Bundesliga, we've got a bit of uh, Italian fashion, and we've also got a breaking news story around some Hummel kit supply issues. But let's start with the Bundesliga, Mike. 
Yeah, so we've got two to talk about. Um, so I'll go with the blackout shirt first. And this is not a Dortmund shirt because despite what some people think, other teams other than Dortmund actually do blackout shirts. So Hanover have, have I think, dropped is what the kids say nowadays, uh, a blackout shirt. It's already sold out, so don't bother looking to go and buy it. But what I thought was interesting about this one is they've actually done a blackout kit because their fans asked for it. So I had a little look into why they did it. And firstly, black is a traditional colour for, for Hanover. Anybody who knows their kits, they always have some some form of black on there. But yeah, they actually apparently did do some sort of research with the fans. And the feedback generally was that the fans wanted an all-black kit. So they decided to go all out and they did a blackout. And I guess it's it's okay. It's, it's a Macron shirt. It's your standard blackout idea, all black, you know, with a slightly uh, different shade for the badges and sponsors. There is a nice little pattern if you look up close on the body. I think it's like the sleeves are playing with a, with a little pattern on the body worth looking at. But it's, uh, yeah, it's quite a nice shirt. You, you guys seen that one? Yeah, it's just a black shirt. <laughs> Every time there's a blackout shirt, that's your answer, isn't it? So I shouldn't have expected any more, really. I'm not a fan of blackout shirts. I find them kind of dull. Um, and uninspiring and I know that's really negative but yeah not for me let's move on to something brighter because we have got something a bit more exciting next haven't we Mike we have and this one will definitely get Adam just a little bit excited so this is the Stuttgart diversity kit this one is really good to be fair so basically anybody that's seen it this year uh, Stuttgart I believe it was their third shirt was pretty much all black what they've done is they've taken that third shirt and they've replaced a lot of the detail on it with rainbows. So there was a black on black band across the chest, which is a full rainbow now. Uh, all the logos running down the sleeves have gone from silver to sort of like it's it's more kind of like it almost looks like that holographic type look, but essentially rainbow colours again. And it looks really good. And the idea of the kit is to promote awareness of discrimination issues due to race, origin or identity, which obviously we all think is a, a good reason to be doing it and unfortunately still needed even in football today but the best part about this one for me is it will be worn in about three weeks or so against Wolfsburg. Hook it to my veins it's brilliant love it I mean that's how you make a black shirt good just add a rainbow to it you can have a blackout shirt but then add the rainbows and it makes it a million percent better. This is the second time Stuttgart have done a rainbow shirt isn't it second year running? It is, yeah. And ju- just to add to that, the previous one was limited as well. And so there's a good chance this one will be. It's not on sale as of yet. Um, I couldn't find a date either on the Stuttgart website or any of the shitty websites like, um, is it Schmutty Bedlines or whatever they call themselves. So yeah, no one seems to know what the, the actual sale date is yet. But yeah, definitely the, the second in a row they've done. The last one was white, wasn't it, with the rainbow detailing. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure we'll let all our listeners know when that does go live. Give them a bit of pre-warning. If you don't follow us already on Twitter, we are at They Think It's, and we're the same on Instagram. So, yeah, give us a follow. Where should we go next? Let's, Adam, you've got, like, some proper news. Normally, we just talk about T-shirts, but you've got some real news here. Yeah, some actual news. So, Hummel have been in a little bit of a pickle of late. Um, it's been known for a while now that Hummel's UK distributor, Elite Sports, have been struggling and is now, in fact, in administration. What we didn't know was exactly how this would affect teams with kits supplied by Hummel. And after today, we still don't really know exactly what's going on. Um, Because one team supplied by Hummel, Bristol City, have come out and announced, no more Hummel, we're done with them, we're moving to O'Neill's, and we are bringing out our 23-24 home shirt now. So they're going to be wearing it 
it's just a really, it's not unprecedented because other teams have done this in the past. I remember back in the early 90s, Norwich actually swapped suppliers from Ribeiro to Mitre. Um, but what they did is they changed the logo on the shirt. So they kept the same shirt and Mitre just sewed over the top of it. But brand new shirt for Bristol City. And the reason they said this, I have the press release here, it says, we did this to ensure the club have sufficient stock levels available for the playing squad for the remainder of the season. This is where it gets interesting. In contrast, Coventry, who it's fair to say have done really well out of Hummel and their kit designs, have announced a brand new three-year deal with them and their new licensee, Sports Pro. Not only that, but alongside a few others from Elite Sports, Coventry have said Rob Revel, who worked with them in designing the kits, has made the move from Elite Sports to Sports Pro. So really, we don't know exactly what's going to happen with everyone. One big team for Hummel, Bristol City, have just said, no, we're done with them. And another big team, Coventry, have said, no, we've managed to work something out and we will be continuing with them and have, in fact, signed a brand new three-year deal. So, yeah, it's interesting. Really interesting, because, I mean, as far as Hummel's work with those two clubs has been, it's been pretty exciting. We, I think most people have got the Coventry shirts in their consciousness for the very, you know, last few years. Bristol City is the goalkeeper shirts that stand out to me when I think of Hummel and Bristol City, and they've they've had some pretty exciting designs. So, what's this? Uh, what's the O'Neill's kits look like? Well, kind of similar actually. If you've um, if you look it up, the goalkeeper shirt is following the same kind of very bright rainbowy pattern that the uh, previous ones have. The home shirt is very reminiscent of some of their older kits. It's kind of got like a double pinstripe effect. I think it's okay. I think if I'm being hypercritical. I don't think the quality looks that good. The collar looks a little bit bunched up, but that's just my kind of eagle eye looking on that side of it. But design-wise, it looks quite smart. It's not too dissimilar to the kind of things that Hummel have actually been doing for them and for Coventry, that kind of retro throwback kind of idea. So I think fans will like it, but whether they'll like it as much as the Hummel work before, I'm not entirely sure. I am, I'm quite intrigued by O'Neill's as a manufacturer, to be honest, because again, we tweeted about this a little while ago. So O'Neill's the brand that on a lot of their, their shirts and Gaelic football jerseys, as they refer to them, actually usually have three stripes down the sleeve, which obviously to us, we all associate with Adidas. But we tweeted about it, maybe we'll retweet it for everyone to see, but there was a big legal case about Adidas trying to stop them using the three stripes, which Adidas lost so I know, I know they don't generally do it if they come over the sea into the UK, O'Neill's, but I still think it's quite interesting to keep an eye on sort of like any training wear, any sort of like casual wear that might come through just to see if any of those three stripe designs do slip through or if they do just avoid using it in the UK market. It's funny you mentioned that about the three stripes because I think that City kit looks like a, a Bayern Munich shirt from a couple of years back with a white pinstripe. But O'Neill's. Terrible night out, sticky floors, but not bad football shirt design. <laughs> Tom, you always deliver, always deliver. Uh, you've got a bit of Italian fashion advice. Advice? Are you going to give us advice? I don't know. You're going to tell us about a shirt, though. Yeah, we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's this AC Milan collab with Puma, well, AC Milan and Puma collab with a Milan fashion house, Cochet, I believe it's called, because of the accent that we played around with that last time. But Cochet, I think is what it's called now. And they've released this fourth shirt, a goalkeeper shirt and some pre-match stuff. And the shirt is really nice. I think we said before when we had a, a little mention of it, it's a great looking shirt, red and black kind of broken stripes in an 8-bit pixelated kind of style, which is very much the intention of the designers. A couple of the things in the press release made me feel a little queasy. 
I'm not going to lie, there was mention of crypto punks. There was mention of couture and capsules. And it just made me feel a little bit sick in my mouth. But the shirt looks great. The box looks great because it does come in a box. And I know a lot of people will be really happy to receive that. And then another thing that I don't know if this is a first, I believe it is, but the decals of this shirt are going to be used in the Rocket League video game as well. So I think it's the first shirt of its kind that's going to be used in that game, which is obviously a huge online success. And the shirt will be worn on the pitch. I can't tell you in which fixture off the top of my head, but I think it's a fantastic shirt and one that I haven't bought yet, but I am considering it. Two things quickly. My little my little boy plays Rocket League, so I'll keep keen eye out for that. Oh, and so does Adam, apparently. He's just put his hand up. Um, but secondly, just to clarify, th- this is a different collab from the previous Cochet collab, isn't it? So they did some stuff before that, w- w- do I remember rightly, didn't actually have the Puma um, logo on, did it? And now they've done this again with the Puma logo on, and this is what this is going to be one on the pitch. So it's two different collabs they did, isn't it? Yeah, last year's collab was with Nemen, um, so a different fashion house i think the confusion is a few weeks ago when the images were leaked it was leaked with just the cochet are we sticking with cochet not cock a or cock um just a cochet badge and not puma and we we sort of wondered whether puma was going to be there but now now they've marketed it as the fourth shirt and i think uh it ties into our feature in a moment i think they're wearing it this weekend just gone as this comes out against atalanta actually yeah the puma badge is there so, oh, okay, yeah. that, that that makes sense. To be honest with you, I, I, as you guys know, I don't really follow Italian football. I'm not Italian kits are not really my thing. And I was just curious to know if this was the same one we'd previously talked about. So, yeah. Adam, Rocket League, uh, honestly, what is it? Well, I'm a 40-year-old man who loves playing a game where you control a remote control car to knock a ball into a goal. And it's just hilarious. But I think actually looking at the design of the shirt, it's quite pixelated. It does suit the game quite well. I can see how they would be introducing it. That's kind of an interesting angle. Of course, not the first football shirt to have a Rocket League connection. There's the team in America, San Diego Loyal, a sponsored by Rocket League. And I did really want one of those shirts, but it's really expensive to get it shipped over. But still, not the only Rocket League connection there. That wraps up the kit news. We've got a feature coming up, haven't we, Tom? We have. We spoke to another Tom, Tom Underhill, who is the author of a fantastic Atalanta book called In the Hands of a Goddess. So here he is now. So this week we've got another club special for you and we are delighted to welcome to the pod Tom Underhill. Tom is the author of The Working Hands of a Goddess, which tells the tale of Atalanta and more formally the Gasparini era. But um, Tom, welcome to the pod. Really looking forward to chatting to you today. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having me on, guys. It's a, it's a pleasure. And yeah, look forward to talking about talking about Atalanta and the, their history going back to the kind of 1910s, 1920s. Tom had to join me today as well. We're good confusion here with two Toms, but uh, we'll, we'll call Tom just shirt fan for today, I think, um, so it doesn't get too confusing. But shirt fan had to join today, being a being a big Calcier fan himself. Yeah, I so I haven't read the book, whereas Adrian has, but it's on my list of purchases. So I'm kind of here to get like a pre-show of this interview because I'm just fascinated by it, and yeah, I can't wait to find out a bit more. And Tom, I've told him he's got to buy his own version of the book. I'm not lending him mine, so you're going to get your royalties, don't worry. <laughs> That's true. He has told me. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for, uh, for making that clear. <laughs> 
but the the book itself is brilliant and i know sort of like the the the, the title the working project really is looking at the sort of the more recent gasparini era but the book goes into a tremendous detail around the club and the backdrop and how it's established and how it's set up and takes you right through to the modern era so um really really enjoyable read so good i've read it twice in fact so um I, I read it when it first came out and i picked it up again last week in preparation for today but what i found really fascinating was actually it tells the tale of how the club was formed really well you know you set the scene of you know the landscape where the you know bergamo the backdrop against milan um and how the clubs came together and we do something every week don't we tom where we we talk about um kit history and um how how should we describe our histories? They're a bit vague. They're definitely not as in depth as this book is in terms of background. I'm sure it's it's kind of part of the fun of our kit histories is is it a myth or is it a fact? But so I'm looking forward to hearing a bit more facts this time. And and we're going to get that because um, the first few chapters are really brilliant in in the way they focus um, on how the club came together. So Tom, I don't know if if you could maybe talk to us about that how the club was formed and, and why they wear the famous uh, black and blue stripes well firstly I just want to say thank you for the, thank you for the kind endorsement like it, it really it does mean a lot particularly when you know someone's kind of telling you you know to your face like how that you've done something that's really worthwhile so thank you for that um I think it's uh if we're going back to how the club was formed it's important to kind of get an understanding of Bergamo as a kind of geographical location so it's about 40 40 minutes on the train from from Milan and um never in its right was a particularly like a football heritage city and it's it's getting there but it's it, but it never never to the to the extent that that Milan is and it's the the most distinct feature is this set over two levels so you have like a a rich old town that's that's set up on a hill that kind of backs onto the alps uh stunning typically italian architecture uh, you know, lots of piazzas, and there's the cathedral there, and it's everything kind of postcard Italian, North Italian, and then beneath it, connected by a funicular railway, is like this this lower town that has uh, recently become like a very modern lower town. Lots of there's a shopping centre, there's it's, it's a very commercial uh, point, and that's how you get into Bergamo. Um, and at the time, there was a there was a football team. But go back to the 1910s, there was a football team in. Um, in Bergamo, but it was set up in up in the old town, the richer old town. So if you were a student who lived in the in the lower town, you'd have to pay to get on the funicular railway to get up to to the ground, and it just wasn't. Um, it was just becoming slightly unfeasible. So a, a group of students at the uh, at the university down in the in the the lower town called the Chittabassa, they came together one night and decided they wanted to start a, a first of all a sports club. You know that had like quite a lot of uh, university sides at the time. They would be not just football, but they would have athletics, gymnastics, uh, wrestling. Um, so they set out with this idea that they wanted to form form this club that people that people in the Chittabassa could access. Um, and they were up late trying to think of what the perfect name would be, and they went through their old their textbooks that they'd been studying that day. And they stumbled across during their mythology, their Greek mythology studies. They stumbled across the, the sort of the deity of Atalanta, who in Greek mythology, Greek mythology, she wasn't she wasn't a goddess, but she was sort of like a kind of nymph spirit sort of figure. 
who was blessed with incredible athleticism and uh it was said that she she would promise her hand in marriage to any any man who could beat her in a race and such was her speed across the ground and uh, uh one one figure did beat her in a race but it turned out that he had he had gone to the gods for a uh to have the upper hand to kind of cheat his way to marriage and as as a result he was turned into a lion so that was the that was kind of the story behind it so so atalanta became as a figure and a kind of symbolizing uh kind of athleticism and speed and power and it was just the perfect it was the perfect name to give this to give this new side and yeah, that was how that was how the one of the two feeder clubs who would come together to become Atalanta Bergamasca Calcio, as it's known today. Uh, that was how that one. That was how that came together. That's amazing. And so Ledea was born from some university students reading their textbooks of a day, rather than it being, you know, I don't know about you, Tom, but I always thought it was maybe inspired by the city itself. Maybe there's some architecture because if you walk around Bergamo today, you see. Yeah, the goddess everywhere and references to it but actually it all comes from this sports club and that that meeting they had i absolutely love yeah. that personally i just think you know it, the, the context and the, the kind of background to that crest choice the nickname choice the inf- inspiration from the the mythology it's such a student thing isn't it it's like you know the equivalent of now like you open your spark notes and you try and really <laughs> it's like like a real <laughs> in-depth old school italian apprentice episode or something i love it it's great but they moved on from there as well, didn't they? So you, at this point, did you have t- two or three teams competing in the city itself? Yes, you had you had the kind of university, the Society de Atalanta sports sort of sports society side that was born out of these five these five friends at school, uh, university. Sorry, and then you also had FC Bergamo, who were um, based elsewhere in the city. And it got to a time that once the once you start digging into the history of Italian football and particularly league structures, you see it becomes incredibly convoluted around the the time of the wars, and you had different different kind of leagues of north and south, and then sub leagues. It was incredibly complicated. But one of the one of the the, the rules of the time to join the the FIGC, the the Italian uh, Football Federation of the time, um, was that you could only have. There, was, there could only be one team in Bergamo to play in that uh, in that regional division, so they organised a, a two-legged friendly between FC Bergamo and the Atalanta Society, and the Atalanta Society won, and they adopted they rather than uh, they adopted some of the players from FC Bergamo, and they also changed the name so that it would it would kind of uh, acknowledge where they'd where they'd come from as well, and it would be a team of Bergamo, so. Atalanta Bergamasca Calcio was born and uh with it a new a new badge, new kit, as I'm sure we'll get onto in a minute. And yeah, that was the that was the foundation from which we've ended up where we are today, where it is firmly a one one club city. And the nineteen oh seven element that comes from FC Bergamo, does it? They carried that piece forward. Is that what the reference is to? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that was the that's where yeah, because Atalanta Bergamasca Calcio wasn't formed in 1907. That was formed. That was formed a, a few, a, a decade or so later when they came together. But the 1907 that you see when you walk around, you see it on the badge. You will see it on the back of the shirt. And if you walk around anywhere around Bergamo, you see, 
you see the 1907 sprayed absolutely everywhere. It's like an iconic, even even on the in the the curva nord in the stadium. 1907 is emblazoned on the on the seats of the main curva. So yeah, that's that's where that derives from. I always think about Champions League kit a couple of years ago that had it's just 1907 was just a pattern throughout the kit. Um, that's something I'm very proud of. This kind of amalgamation of the two societies, the two clubs. So uh, initially, the, the students' club. This is me going very kit history, our kit history now. So their initial kit color was black and white. Is that correct? Black and mm-hmm. white stripes. Yeah, so, that's right. And the blue came in from Bergamasca after mm-hmm. this friendly, and when they they merged and they adopted a stripe from each side. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And that when it was first, yeah, when it was first formed, it was a half and half shirt, uh, straight like a vertical half and half blue and black. And then it was just a few years later when the blue and black uh, stripes came in. And I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I didn't, I did look into. I'm not entirely sure whether that was influenced by by Inter um or whether it was uh just kind of coincidence but um yeah like like you said earlier the kind of the hit the exact histories of who got struck who put the stripes on first and who whose colors take after who can become quite can become quite murky um i, I live i live in uh i live in yeovil so the big story about yeovil and celtic it, uh, and the green and white stripes is one sort of local local <laughs> law here but um yeah and uh yeah and i, and I do actually think yeah, the the similarity to Inter has probably has probably harmed and impacted the ability for Atalanta to become an iconic kit club, if that sort of makes sense. But um, yeah, that's where that that's where that comes from. Yeah, I'd like to think that Atalanta got there first because for for centuries, well, for decades, Inter Milan and and AC were raiding Atalanta for for players, and I'd like to think romantically that they one of them raided the kit as well. Yeah, they uh, they certainly did. Yeah, the, that that close proximity and being the kind of the dominant sort of capital of Lombardy meant that they could they could tap in and raid the the academies. And if if a if a player had a good season at Atalanta, it would be one you know one year, and they were they were ripped away from them. Um, looking at some of the Atalanta's sole silverware that they they've ever won was in the nineteen sixty. Uh, 62 63 Coppa Italia uh where they they won it at San Siro and the the star of that team was uh was Domenghini the striker who uh went on to play in the 68 uh European Championships and he was he was Bergamaschi but he was taken by Inter a year later and became the one of the players as Helenio Herrera's kind of iconic Inter team of the late of the late 60s so that's just that's just one example you know in Inzaghi uh, many years down the line, um, Vieri, just a, a, it goes on and on, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah Vieri. Yeah, um, there's just there's there's so many of them. Um, Galliardini has happened in the 2000s. Franck Kessier. It, it's just a, a, a pipeline of Milan kind of picking up Atalanta talent. So, yeah, I think we could like to think that they had they could stake the blue and black verticals as their uh, as their own. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. And and you, you touch on it there, you know, people think of Atalanta as being a relatively modern team. Do you reckon that's fair to say? In people's consciousness, because of how they've been doing ever you know, really ever since this the man that inspired your book, I think, Gasparini took over and he changed the culture and the psyche of the club. And um 
and the style of the club as well, because that that was one of the things that comes through your book, you know, for for, for decades, for, for various managers and repetition, repetitions of managers for anybody who picks up the book. Um, Atalanta always struggled to get, score goals, didn't they? The, you know, they were always a very, very um, conservative and low scoring club, but all, all of that changed, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they um, even go back to the go back to the seventies and eighties where Atlanta really struggled. They would during the eighties they didn't spend um, actually during the seventies. Sorry, they didn't spend more than one consecutive season in the same division. So they bounced from Serie B to Serie A, went all the way down to Serie C, and it was um, multiple different ownerships, and it was a really um, problematic time. And then uh, during the 80s, they kind of uh, they managed to cobble together a uh, iconic's a strong word, but for Atalantini fans, it, it was an iconic team. Where captain by um, Glenn Stromberg, it was a, a Swedish midfielder who still is like an ambassador for Atalanta. He's a he's a adopted Bergamaschi. He's a, like, adored around the city. Um, Claudio Canigia as well was a uh, was was brought in and uh, kind of started to put them back on the map really because it'd been a long time that they'd fallen off the fallen by the wayside in the sort of the broader scheme of the Italian the Italian giants and um Atlanta's always been known as the queen of the provincial teams. So outside of the seven iconic teams of of Italy, Atalanta has always been the the eighth member, if you like. Um and then yeah during the two thousands again just the 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 pipeline of talent and academy players was still very, very strong and picking up uh you know young players like Inzaghi and Vieira uh, Vieri and bringing them through and making them into you know uh, golden boot winning strikers only to see them poached and there comes a point where that that does become unsustainable and they were they were going through managers quite quite regularly and um yeah 2016 arrived where they they just staved off relegation a uh, season or two before under uh, Eduardo Reja who most recently is the Albania um, Albania manager. Ah, right, yeah. Um, he uh, he played an incredibly pragmatic, boring, dull style of football, but he, he kept them up on a very short contract and they parted ways with him and brought in Gianpera Gasparini off the back of his second Genoa stint. And the rest, to say the rest is history, is the most cliched thing ever, but it... it it has absolutely changed that club forever, and it's um, it's just a it's a remarkable story about a remarkable and very unique manager. See, what Adrian says there about Atalanta kind of being seen as this modern club, I think I think that perception, for me, again, this, this exists because of Gasparini's influence and how they've kind of burst onto the European consciousness, especially outside of Italy. And one of the things as a Serie A watcher and observer that I think is so been so exciting about watching his Atalanta teams is the style of his football. And it's very... 
non-Italian compared to that kind of 90s to early 2000s mid 2000s traditional Italian outlook you know Cantonaccio very defensive very tactical and of course he is those things always seems to play free at the back free central defenders but his game is so high pressing it's so kind of like on the front foot he's going to get it yeah he's, his players are going to press and I think he's kind of introduced this style of play like players, like managers like Klopp, like Guardiola elsewhere in other countries. And the rest of Serie A is now so exciting, full of goals. And I think a lot of that is down to his influence. Would that be fair to say? I think so. Yeah. And it's it's an interesting story of Gasparini because there's, I think there's an element of counterculture within his own experiences because he, uh, so he was born in Piedmont, which is the, the region that Juventus uh, and uh, are from where Turin is based. And he's a lifelong Juventus fan. And when he finished his playing career, he went into the coaching setup at, at Juventus, having he'd been there as a youth player, gone off and played kind of various levels of of professional football, retired, and then came back to to Juve as a as a youth coach. And he stayed as a youth coach for over a decade. It was a long time. He he had a very successful um, youth tier Primavera team there. Now, the the head coaches of the senior team at Juve at the time were people like Marcello Lippi, um, Trapattoni and Ancelotti. Not so much in the case of, um, of Ancelotti, but particularly Trapattoni is like you think of him as a Catanaccio kind of um, ideologue. And I do wonder whether there was a, a part of Gasparini that was like a, a kickback against that. He is always st- struck as a bit of a revolutionary figure a very abrasive defiant figure and I wonder if there's a part of him that kind of kicked back against that when he had the chances to take the reins um of his own side and if any interview you see with him he cites his influences and his role models he cites uh, Dutch football much more than he does Italian football he's a his his ideal team and the team that he looks most fondly on is uh, Louis van Gaal's Ajax of the 90s Again, three at the back, but with wing back wing backs that were more like wingers, and there are a lot of similarities there. And, and the basic, just basic principles of having players all over the pitch who can um, can move anywhere and aren't restricted by their own roles. Like if you look at a typical Gasparini team, if you take most centre backs out of that team and plonk them in another one, even if it's a more typical four at the back system, they look really ragged and they look error prone and a bit mental and like <laughs> what what are they doing here whereas you put them in the Gasparini team and he needs those players he needs wide center backs who are going to make underlapping runs he needs um he needs central midfielders who at best on the ball are tidy and technical but nothing nothing beyond that but are incredibly willing uh, pressers and can follow their man wherever the pit wherever they go over the pitch um, and you're right; it's very, it's very untypically Italian. But we have seen in recent years, and I don't know if you could trace that back to him, but you, but you have seen in recent years that there is a new wave of Italian football, hmm. and you have seen people. So, so his, his, um, if you look at his, if you think of like a coaching tree where you might have him at the top and branches coming out of it, you have a very direct line to uh, Ivan Juric, who's at, um, who's at Torino now plays in a very, very yeah. similar way. Um, Roberto De Zerbi doesn't play particularly like Gasparini, but there are, I think there are elements of influence that I think De Zerbi is probably more like a Conte um, descendant, albeit playing in a much, much more attractive style of play. Um, 
but I do I do think you do start to get these kind of threads and Italian football is all the better for having someone like Gasparini in it and um, outside of the kind of Contes and Allegri's and Mourinho's to have people like Spalletti and Gasparini and that that's I kind of group him with that group with Spalletti with Sari the kind of the the what people brands not winners but have a kind of wider view of how football should be played. I'd much rather watch a Gasparini side than a than a, a, a I know what you said about Sari like he's a he has his philosophy doesn't he but it, it, the Gasparini is way more free flowing but I just have to go back to what you said about certain Gasparini players and those defenders that sometimes look out of place or ragged. And the one that always comes to my mind is Toloi. I know he's the club captain. Yeah. And he's a great player for, for Atalanta. But if you was to put him in like a four-man defence as a, as a one of two centre-backs, I'm not sure he'd succeed quite so well. And another one you say about these kind of players that will go outside of their role. I am a huge fan of Coop Miners. I think he's absolutely brilliant because he plays anywhere and everywhere. You can They've played him as a 10, he's played as a centre-back, he's played on the wing. And to me, he is like the archetypal Gasparini player. Like you said, he just, he'll do his job and he'll do it to a good standard wherever he plays. But that was one of the other things that came through the book. And yeah, we, we are a football kit podcast, history podcast, whatever you want to look at. And we don't concentrate on the tactics. Now, the tactics side of it, you cover tremendously well, Tom, like really enjoyable reads. So um, for anybody that wants to get behind the mechanics of a Gasparini system, it's brilliant. And the other thing that comes out of it is Gasparini's ability to replace players because, you know, Atalanta, I think they're quite famous for having like the 16th or 17th highest playing budget or what have you in, in Syria. And then and, and so naturally they do lose players and a lot of players for a lot of money. And you realise that it's still going on today, but it's the ability to bring in the, the coot miners to finding the Mancini's and then selling them on and the Romero's and selling them. I mean, there's a constant recycling that's just, um, yeah. I mean, it's just unbelievable really. It's just sort of identifying attributes of players and knowing which player will fit in the system. It's, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And um, a lot of that is having a forced, a forced hand and, um, players, not so much in the last few years, but typically over the last over the decades, they come to Atalanta knowing that if they put in a good shift and a good season, they they attract they attract the eyes of Europe. And not only in the first team, it's, it's even gone down to the academy level now. So you look at people like um, look at like Kulusevski, for example, who made about less than ten senior appearances for Atalanta, maybe in in Syria in Syria competitions. Um, but it was his performances as a as a Primavera player that really caught the attention. He went on loan to to Parma, and then Juve bought him, and then obviously then he's gone to Spurs. So it's in another example is Bastoni, who's at Inter at the moment, one of the best left footed centre backs in world football. They signed Inter signed Bastoni from Atalanta in 2017, and he played three times for Atalanta, and it was a huge fee, 30, wasn't it? Yeah, over 30 million euros on him because his performances in that youth setup were so impressive and they knew that they were getting a a player from an academy that that set players on the right path immediately. And that means that often Atalanta wouldn't see the... They wouldn't reap the rewards of the seeds they sow. They they get the financial, but rather than, you know, you, you get your 30 million for... For Bastoni, that thirty million doesn't then go on a tried and tested player. That goes into five or six players. 
and it means that um it means that over the years it has become it's become harder and harder particularly if you've got an abrasive figure like Gasparini who his work and relationship with the club has been fantastic overall for someone who does can cause problems at clubs and he doesn't take nonsense it's been very very good but recently some of the problems have been that he's felt that like they're, they're, they're continuing to expect him to work miracles that he sells a player like Christian Romero and then who do you bring and luckily they, they brought in um, they brought in Mero Demaral for example who's been a very good player but not the, not the Romero standards for example um, but yeah particularly in those early years at Gasparini you'd have you know big fees for players like Brian Cristante and Frank Kessier we've mentioned and the, and the, the interesting thing is that they would they would get those fees and those players would go and play elsewhere. And you'd look at them and think like, is this the same player? Is there, is there like, there's something missing about them. And Brian Cristante is a, a fine central midfielder. Like he does a perfect, you know, he's a Mourinho trustee and he loves him, but you don't get the same Cristante that you had at Atalanta, who was a complete box to box midfielder and like a nightmare in around the final third. It's it's like it's something about Gasparini that he can rinse untold potential out of players in an attacking sense. It's it's like a really strange and, and we can't really put a finger on why or how, whether it's man management, whether it's his what, what he does on the pitch. Um, so it, as an asset, Gasparini's ability to turn these unpolished, not even unpolished, just just unfancied players get a huge season out of them. And Atalanta sell them on for huge money. That has been every bit as important for sustaining, for them being a sustainable operation as the, you know, coming third, you know, three third place finishes. Like that's every bit as important as that, really. I mean, talking about players on the conveyor belt, the next one surely is going to be Scalvini. He's looks a real talent and surely one that will go on for big money, I reckon. But just trying to bring it back to the kits a little bit. You know, you've mentioned some of these players that have come through. Bastoni, you've got players like Vieri and Zaghi, we mentioned earlier, Kessier. And then these kind of unpolished players or players that haven't quite hit the heights of their career that Gasparini has got out. So people like Papu Gomez, you've got Ilicic, who of course was at Atalanta too. People like Luis, Luis Muriel, who had a patchy career really until turning up at Atalanta. He was never as good for Udinese. But in terms of the kits, is there a particular player or like a name set that to Atalanta fans means the most? Like a, a shirt with a player on the back that an Atalanta fan would would ha- hold in the highest regard? I think there's there's a there's a couple really. Um so I think if you're going back to the eighties, a, a Stromberg, you see it when you go, you know, having been to Bergamo and watched the match there last year, there are a lot of a lot of uh, Stromberg shirts around the around the stands because he he symbolized everything that it was to be a not just an Atalanta player but a Bergamaschi. So relentlessly hard working um would would you know die for the shirt everything that it, it, before before the era of like incredible attacking football came that came with Gasparini all Atalanta fans wanted was a player and a team that could match the work ethic of what is a a working class city that that has is built off um ideas of um construction and 
um, let your hands do the talking rather than you being too, you know, no time for, for the kind of the, the eloquence and the need to um, quote, like you might get in Milan, for example, for art, it's more about being hardworking and, and those sort of principles and Stromberg typified that in, in recent times, you get a huge mix in the, in the stadium. You get an absolute wide because um, there's a, there's a lot of players who've kind of come hadn't caught fire, become fan favorites and then left a season later. So it means that often you don't get a lot of the same kind of name set. So I've, I've got a, <laughs> when I went last year, I got a, I bought an away shirt and uh, got a Remo Freuler name set okay. on the back thinking, I mean, I, I love it. I loved him as a player. He was vice captain. And I thought, well, he's going to be there for years more. He's only 20, 29, 30. And he's definitely going to play today because he always plays. He didn't play that day and they sold him four months later. So <laughs> that's that's the way it goes. Um, and then, yeah, probably, probably at the moment, I think a Coop, Coop Miners is the one that they love. Absolutely, I've, I've got a Coop Miners shirt as well. And the home shirt from last year, which is probably my favorite Atalanta shirt. I think the home shirt from last year. Um, yeah, I've got a Coop Miners name set on that. And yeah, they absolutely adore him. They absolutely adore him. He's superbly technical, but has all of those baseline work ethic ideas. And um, yeah, if he doesn't play, there's a really noticeable gap in that side. And it's, again, you kind of think this summer, next summer, it, it probably won't be long until until his name set becomes one of the past as well, which is pretty sad. But um, yeah, I'd probably say Coop Miners is probably the one at the moment that's the the go-to, I'd say. See, I, I'm desperate for a Coop Miners shirt myself, but I've, I've, I'll tell you a player who's caught my eye this year, Aslan, is that Shorland striker, young, the young Danish striker, I believe. Yeah, really he him. looks really impressive, doesn't he? Looks really good. Another find, another absolute find for mm-hmm. Atalanta. Yeah, yeah, he's a, you know, if there wasn't another young blonde striker that begins in the H <laughs> from that kind of area... I think Hoyland would be absolutely like what would be everyone would be interested in. He's he's explosively quick. He's six foot three, and he's there are there there are similarities to Harland apart from Harland as that kind of um, quite clunky robotic way of moving, whereas Hoyland is like a, he he's just a he looks he's very natural, very quick across the ground. Um, he's got some stuff to work on. Like this is his full first full season in kind of a top five league, and he is very raw. Um, is um, he scores the goals? He scores some outrageous goals, but misses some quite simple ones. His first touch is a bit erratic at the moment. Bits of bits of Darwin Nunez in there. There's there's definitely some sort of like, you know, can catch fire, but equally might miss what you want him to score. Um, but again, yeah. If it, this season will probably be too soon for him, but next season or the season after, you're looking at another huge, huge asset. And um, yeah, we'll just have to ask the club to go and dip back into Scandinavia or or Belgium and find the next one. That'll be the next task for them. Well, they've done all right replacing those um, those exits so far. So long may that continue. Listen, we 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 touched on shirts a bit at the end there, and we always close on a shirt related question as well. And I know you said your favourite Atlanta shirt was a home shirt from last season. So are we going to let him give this answer, Tom, or do we tell him he has to choose a different one? You can use that shirt if you want, yeah? You can use the shirt. He has to pick a different name set, though. Right. Okay, okay. Ask, so, sorry, so we ask every uh, every guest to choose um, 
in terms of their clubs. So for Atalanta, you can choose any shirt from any time and any player. Which which would you pair up together? The perfect player in the perfect shirt. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. But yeah, for shirt, I think. I think it, when they when they kind of first caught on under Gasparini, um, I wasn't a massive fan of their of their shirts at the time. Um, I can't remember who the um, who the sponsors were. I think it might be sort of the Radici Group, which is the the kind of the consortium that the president Picassi, um he is part of, which is like a construction company, and they build um, shopping malls and that sort of thing. Um, which is worth saying as well, Picassi, the, the president who owns it, he actually used to play for Atalanta as well, which kind of feeds into the the ethos of you know the club being organic and sustainable and and all that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, that 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 sponsor has been kind of moved up the shirt onto the shoulder, um, which I think looks looks really nice. And then the the one last season was like a thick blue and black stripe with gold trim, nice collar on it. It's just a lovely shirt, and I I bought it very very quickly. Um, if I was to go, and I mean, I think it'd be hard to look past Papu Gomez. I think as a captain under Gasparini and turned into pretty much pretty much Serie A's best player I think during that four year spell um, put up huge goal and assist numbers um, an absolute sort of terrier would work really hard and score the most stunning stunning goals I've, I, I've, I think he's probably if you're looking for a profile that's as close to Lionel Messi as you can get I think Gomez at his peak and his peak came age 31, 32, which is really interesting. I think you get something very similar to what to a Messi type profile, right footed to be on the other side to Messi. Um, he was just a fantastic player. And I'm very, I'm very sad I never got to play see him uh see him play in a see him play live. Or as even as I was writing the book, he was just about to leave. Um so I, I was kind of going off past memories rather than enjoying him as, as I was writing it, which was which is pretty sad. Um, so I, I think probably a number ten, number ten, Papi Gomez on last season's home shirt. I think would be the, yeah, that that would be my that would be my my choice. I like that a modern answer as well. That was really, really enjoyable. I, I'm, I reckon we could probably keep chatting for another forty minutes, but um, but you know, this, what we don't want to do is give away what's in the book. And there is so much detail in there from backstories, past players, management changes. But like I said, the tactics and the recruitment piece is really, really interesting. And some of the backstories about about those players and Papa Gomez and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I would just implore anybody to to go out and find it. Um, Tom, where can people pick up the book? Well, thank you, thank you once again for having me on and for uh, yeah, giving me a chance to kind of tell the tell the story because that, that's what the book's all about. It's just letting people know just about what how how cool this team is and uh, yeah, I, I do really love this team and this club. So uh, yeah, thank you again. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Tom D underscore Underhill. Um, I do I write some pieces uh, for various various sites, um, so you can see my 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 writing there. And then yeah, the book you can get directly from from pitch publishing the, the the publishing house that work with me or you can get it from amazon as well for convenience for if you if you want it tomorrow you get it off amazon so uh yeah any of the above
any of the above. So that's just, just very big. That's the working hands of a goddess. We will, of course, share that um, with the usual episode. Um, Tom, I'll pass to you just to say goodbye. Yeah, really enjoyed that. I'm going to be first in the queue for that book when we come off of this. So, yeah, Tom, that was really, really good. Thank you so much for, for coming along and we'll share the links. Yeah, that was really interesting, actually. I'll admit my knowledge of Italian football and even Atalanta uh, isn't particularly strong. So I found the kit history element quite interesting there, the way that they had the two teams that played and that they amalgamated their two kits to form the black and the blue to make the, the singular kit. I like that. Yeah, I, I like that as well. It's always nice to hear from a fellow kit historian as well. Um, <laughs> so I don't know why everybody's laughing at that. Um, yeah, to be honest with you, Atalanta, they're... As everyone knows, I've said it already on this podcast, not really, you know, a follower of Italian football too too closely, but I do think that Atalanta shirts do stick out to me. And if I was going to go out today and buy a particular shirt from an Italian club, I reckon they'd be up there. They got some classics as well. So, yeah, but it, it was. Adam's right. It's good to hear the kit history behind that as well. Yeah, I think my favourite Atalanta one is the one where they had the wrong skyline on it. That was the <laughs> um, that, that was particular yeah. highlight of, of their kit history, I think. Yeah, yeah, very well remembered the Christmas kit from uh, from, from a year ago. But um, Tom, you got the bug as well, didn't you? Did you did you hit buy on that the Atlanta shirt you were looking at as we were doing the interview? No, I, I haven't because of this AC Milan release that's come out. Um, I I can probably only go for one of them, so I'm still still weighing it up. But it was a Malinovsky shirt from a couple of years ago, and I'm a huge fan of the Ukrainian because he's got a highlight reel of goals to rival anyone in world football, I reckon. And obviously a lot of them scored at Atalanta. So yeah, I'm on the I'm on the hunt. Right, Chio, that's uh that's another feature down. We've got a few more coming up though, haven't we, over the next few weeks. Tom, what have we got coming? Yeah, we have a Liverpool feature coming up in the next couple of weeks, and Mike is working like a beaver, like an absolute beaver, to try and get an MLS special together for us. Because we do want to talk about all of these MLS kits in more depth. We are also going to have a special for some of the Wales fans out there, and particularly Gareth Bale. And it's funny that we spoke about Rocket League earlier, because this guest, I think is going to want to talk about FIFA and Pro Evolution Soccer as well, because he has a bit of a video game past. So, yeah, keep your eyes peeled as well. Keep your ears peeled as well. Exciting stuff. Mike, we've got more exciting stuff going on in the socials at the moment, haven't we? We have, yeah. We've got all the usual stuff, which, you know, gets everybody going. Because, again, we said it before, but we're about to tick over 10,000 followers on Twitter as well. I might even do that by the time this pod goes out, which is amazing. And anybody who follows us, we've seen the other day, and I put it on Instagram as well, that after the success of the, the top 20 for 2022 that we did, we put a little tweet out regarding doing basically what we're referring to as a goat poll. So it was, it's essentially, we're, we're going to come up with the same scoring system and define the greatest shirt of all time. That's going to be the, the definitive answer. Nobody can argue with it. We've already had loads of lists back. Some of them are absolutely fucking mental, <laughs> but I'm getting, they're coming in already. Honestly, there's the, the, the diversity of the shirts that come in that people regard as, as the top five shirts of all time is insane. And I love, love looking through them. So for anybody listening that wants to take part, because we're trying to open it up to anyone that we can, send them in. We would just want your top five shirts of all time sent into hello at ttkaopod.com. 
See, I really love the fact that you said some of them are absolutely fucking mental because I really don't want to see a list of, you know, generic, the same old shirts you see all the time. What I want to implore people to do, if you ever bother listening to me, is don't pick the shirts you think people want to hear. Pick the shirts you genuinely think are your top five favourite because I think the madder and the weirder the better. And I'm certainly going to throw some surprises in my five it's not gonna all be you know Fiorentina Battistute and Nintendo because it's a great shirt but I'm bored of it I I want weird and wacky definitely just as a little teaser for it we've already had modern Venezia shirts put forward we've had a really random one which is the Austria 2008 away shirt has been in the five greatest shirts of all time. So it, honestly, the, the list is is going to be mad. Last time, I think we ended up with the best part of three hundred different shirts put forward. It was mad. This time, I think it's going to be even more varied. To be honest, if Denmark eighty six and Holland eighty eight are your top shirts of all time, that's fine. But I'm genuinely really excited to see the really weird and the wonderful. And I've already been thinking of my top five. And yeah, it's just going to be rainbows probably, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's going to be really interesting. I'm gen- also generally quite interested to see what your, as in the, the, they think it's all over pod people, what your top five is going to be and how much we're going to take the mick out of Mike for, for his top five. <laughs> we I just will, felt like I had to join him with taking the mick out of you. Like yeah. <laughs> they told me this is what we do on here. So yeah, yeah. On to, to, to be honest, I, I, I'm usually accused of bullshitting on kit history or called a Nazi. It's one or the other every week. So yeah, it's fine. That sounds brilliant. So yeah, I urge everybody to get involved in that. Also, I guess we probably will have clocked over 10,000 followers now. So we're going to have a couple of giveaways as well, Mike. We we are, yeah. So we've already got a couple lined up and a couple of other possibilities as well. Um, basically, we're just going to try and give some stuff back as a thank you to everybody who has followed, shared, liked everything that we've done because the the socials, they basically just lead to more listeners for the podcast. And there's a lot of people listening to the podcast now. And, you know, I, I would say that, that Twitter in particular, it helps a lot with that. So, yeah, it's just, it, it'll be, a, hopefully... I'm, I'm hoping we can do five days of giveaways, which would be really, really good. But we're definitely on two, probably up to three. So we're just looking for a couple more good ones because we want to make them worthwhile as well and not just give away £10 football shirts that anyone can just go and buy. Aren't we so nice that we're getting other people to give away their stuff for us? That's yeah. just, We are the gift that keeps giving. We're, we're just, we're top guys. We really are. Right. Also on that, though, um, Tom, socials, we want feedback, don't we? It does help us get guests, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, please um, keep sharing the love and spreading the love because it means a lot. And it just means that we can create even better content for you going forward, as hard as that is to believe. So, yeah, please, please keep doing it. And just one last thing as well. Obviously, we we work really hard to get good guests on for everybody. But at the same time, it's there are guests that people want us to get on let us know you know if there are certain features you want to hear clubs you want to hear about you know especially if you're you're a member of a particularly uh a big fan base who has sort of like a, a figure within that fan base who is prominent that would like to come on and talk to us about certain clubs you know let us know because then we'll get in touch and we'll try and get them on and we'll talk about your club unless you're birmingham city you can fuck off <laughs> 
Very good, very good. That wraps up another week then. Uh, Adam, you know it's coming to you now, don't you? You know we're going to come I to do. you. I do. I know what's going to happen this time. I'm not going to fuck it up like last time. Come on then, you're on the spot. They think it's all over. It is now.